This morning's reading will be taken from Luke chapter 20, verse 45, and we'll be reading to uh, chapter 21, verse 24. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk round in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and know, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Thank you, Liam. Well, let's carry on reading to the end of the chapter. We'll pick up from verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you will see for yourself and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. 
Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to hear him in the temple. Well, let's pray as we uh, try to study and fathom this uh, extraordinary portion of teaching. Lord Jesus, we pray for your help. We need it today as we explore this uh, important teaching about promised judgment and how to live uh, before the Son of Man comes again. Help us to really, really listen and to really respond as appropriate according to the uh, conviction and help of the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, last Sunday, we looked at uh, Luke chapter 20 uh, through to the beginning of chapter 21. If I was to summarize the content of the previous bit in Mark's gospel that we looked at last week, it would be something like this. Faced with Jesus' identity and authority, there comes a point when we have to make a decision about Jesus. I want to uh, express that in a way to whoever is listening who has not yet made a decision that there comes a point when you have to make a decision about Jesus. And time is a thief. Time runs on and time runs on. Today we come to chapter 21, and the theme of chapter 21 is that for those who reject Jesus, there will come God's terrible judgment. That's a sober passage, no doubt. Or to put it more succinctly, when you put these two things together, decision time, then judgment time. Decision time, then judgment time. Now, if you see on the service sheet, uh, don't be alarmed by the number of headings, um, just means I've really thought about it a lot. And I want to try and crack through some of the explanation of the passage and get to the application stuff towards the end. You see where we're going? There are um, six steps we'll go through. Before that, though, a super quick uh, history lesson. If I was to ask you for um, uh, what are the big events in salvation history or the big events in God's dealing with humanity, you would say, I don't know, creation, exodus, covenant, blessing, King David, whatever, the building of the temple, coming of Christ, his death, resurrection, exaltation. Let me um, add to the list something that's as important as all of these. And you know about this if you are a Christian, but you may not appreciate its significance. And that is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And it is a very big deal uh, in the Bible. It is spoken of in prophets like Daniel, and it is spoken of at length, a whole chapter in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. 
It is the event that is spoken about in the prophecies of Jesus immediately before his death and resurrection. It is a very big uh, deal. Uh, But I suspect it's an event that we may know less about than some of uh, the others. Uh, Let me just explain uh, a little bit more about it. Uh, We know what happened in history. I mean, what we're reading of here in Jesus' teaching is prophecy about what will happen in the future. And when Luke uh, writes his two-volume work, Luke and Acts, that is before these events still. But we know from historians like Josephus and just an army of uh, excavations and archaeological research on the sites that includes things like finding lots of cannonballs buried underground where the old walls of Jerusalem were. Let me take you back to the year 66 AD, and this would be like mainstream media news then. Um, Nero was on the throne in Rome as the emperor, and the persecution against Christians and Jews was really intense. And in the provinces, it was really hard for the Roman authorities to control the provinces, particularly Judea, the homeland of the Jewish people. And there had arisen a revolt in Judea known as the Jewish Revolt around about 66 AD, and it began with um, the the, the Jewish um, zealots uh, overthrowing the Romans in a place called Masada. You may have known of that in history. And in response to that, the emperor Nero dispatched an army under Vespasian to restore order in Judea. And by about the year 68, and you would have seen this on the news channels of the time, resistance in the northern part of the province of Judea had been eradicated, and the Romans turned their full attention with the might of the Roman Empire to the subjugation of Jerusalem. And that same year, the emperor Nero died, and Vespasian Uh, who had been dispatched to deal with Jerusalem, was declared emperor, and the mantle passed to Vespasian's son, Titus, to lead the assault on uh, Jerusalem. Now, a trip to the British Museum in London, and you can see all sorts of artifacts to describe this time. Now, what happened in AD 70 is the Roman legions surrounded the city of Jerusalem between 60 and 80,000 soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers. And they began to slowly squeeze the life out of the Jewish stronghold. And Jerusalem was constructed on the basis of three walls, very hard to penetrate the city. And by the year 70, the attackers had breached Jerusalem's outer walls and they began a systematic ransacking of the city. And the assault culminated in the burning and destruction of the temple. The historian Josephus records that over a million people were killed or taken into captivity, which is a massive number in the ancient world. The temple's sacred relics were taken to Rome, where they were displayed in celebration of victory. And the Jewish rebellion continued in pockets for another three years and was finally extinguished in 73 AD, uh, when the stronghold of Masada, where the Jewish rebellion had begun was taken. Now, I'm going to recommend that uh, this afternoon, if you're not too distracted by the English Premiership, uh, to watch a YouTube video called A Temple in Flames. Okay? I think it's the best one that describes these events. It's really helpful to, to watch. It's called A Temple in Flames, and it just describes the, the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, the temple. I love it in church when I make a contemporary 
illustration like the English Premiership, half of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sport on the wire. And Liverpool's crowning glory. There you go. It's a bit of inside knowledge. Now, that's a little end to the history lesson. And just, if you were living then, around that time, AD 70, which is ahead of the events, it's prophecy of what we're reading here in Luke's Gospel, that is a massive deal, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jerusalem was a real citadel in the ancient world. And the, the physical uh, geography of Jerusalem, if you have been there or if you know it, it's built on hills, and the temple is on the Temple Mount, and there's a massive, massive structure, and there's a big uh, building called the Citadel, which is a fortress that guards the temple, and the temple goes way up into the sky. Uh, Solomon built it, and it's a magnificent structure, uh, a wonder of the world. And it was completely raised to the ground in AD 70. Now, let's turn to Luke's Gospel and what Jesus is teaching with that history in our minds. And you'll see point number one is setting. So let's uh, appreciate in our minds the setting of Jesus' teaching. So chapter 21, verses 5 through 7. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, and we're talking 6 to 16 tons a stone, thousands of them. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? Now, these verses we just read so many centuries on, but that's a massive deal what Jesus is saying. Where were they when he was speaking? Either in the temple courtyards standing beside the, the magnificent pillars uh, in one of the courts of the temple, or, and uh, Mark and Matthew give us more detail on this, possibly uh, on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the Temple Mount, where they would get a brilliant view of the magnificence of the temple, both in its size and in its splendor. The Temple Mount, the Citadel Fortress, the Temple Courts, and the temple itself dominated the city of Jerusalem. And its size and splendor signified its significance as the center of Jewish worship. And as the disciples were looking at it, remarking on its splendor, Jesus makes this devastating statement. And it is a devastating statement. We must appreciate that. Verse 6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Uh, how can we appropriate the significance of this? Think of the, the, the most powerful, the largest institution that you can think of or organization. It's completely raised to the ground. And all that goes with it. It's a massive thing. Now, as we listen to Jesus' answer, this is the second point on the outline, we need to appreciate that Jesus is speaking in his teaching here about two future events. Now, let's just get clear. Jesus is speaking here 
and teaching here before his death. So he's speaking here, and Luke records his teaching around about 30 AD. That's when he's teaching. And Luke's gospel was written by Luke, along with the companion volume Acts, in the mid-60s AD. So about the time that Nero was on the throne. So the events that Jesus is speaking about in Luke's gospel, chapter 21, are future events. Future events to Jesus and future to when Luke wrote his gospel. Yeah, that's really important we see that. And what are these two future events? Number one is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And number two is the coming of the Son of Man at the end of the church age to bring in the new uh, creation. Two events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the coming of the Son of Man at the end of the church age to bring in the new creation. Both future events to when Jesus taught about them and both future events to when Luke recorded what Jesus taught about them. It's really important that we uh, know that. Now, when Luke records Jesus' teaching, there are points in what uh, Liam and I read when it is crystal clear that Jesus is talking about one of these events. There are times when we know he's talking about the other one, and there are other times when it's really hard for us to pin down which one of the two he is talking about. Let me show you where um, he is clearly talking about one of them. So verse 20, read that with me. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And that verse and the three verses that follow, the little section from verses 20 to 24, is clearly about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's obvious. But then look at verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That verse and the little section from verses 20 to 24 is clearly about the coming of the Son of Man. So there are bits of this narrative that he's talking about the future event that is the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple. And there are bits of the narrative when he's teaching about the return of the Son of Man. That's obvious. But much of the rest of it, his teaching is less clear. Is he talking about one or the other? It's hard to be certain. And that's not because we have missed something. It's exactly what Jesus intends. It's as if he is telescoping these two events. He's looking through a telescope and he is seeing one and in his prophecy, the second immediately follows and they merge together because there is a common theme between them that Luke and Jesus want us to appreciate. Now, what is it that happened at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that is common to what will happen when the Son of Man comes at the end of the church age to bring in the new creation? The answer in this text and in Jesus' teaching is the judgment of God. Now, that's the common link. Now, I'm very pleased with myself. It's 14 minutes, 39 seconds, and we're at point three. That's only happened once in the last 22 years. <laughs> it could all go wrong yet. Now, point three, those who reject Jesus will experience God's terrible judgment. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to exaggerate 
that summary of what it says. I'm not trying to make it blacker than it is. I'm not trying to make it more sober than it is. I'm trying to just cut with the grain and the tone of the text. Those who reject Jesus will experience God's terrible judgment. Now remember the preceding section, chapter 20, verse 19 through 21, verse 4, faced with Jesus' identity and authority, there comes a point when we have to make a decision about Jesus. Dominating that previous section was the Jewish religious leader's rejection of Jesus. And that is a theme that has been building all the way through Luke's gospel. The more clearly Jesus reveals his identity and the more often he demonstrates his authority, the more vehement the opposition to and rejection of Jesus is from the Jewish religious leadership. And let's before we consider Jesus' pronouncement of judgment, reflect on Jesus' broken heart. Some of the most poignant passages in the gospel are where Jesus comes to his own people, the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was the Messiah in the line of David, the long-promised Jewish Messiah. Yes, the Jewish Messiah would be the Messiah to the Gentile nations, but he first came to the Jews when Jesus went to his hometown and was rejected, he could not fathom it and understand it. And just to anticipate something coming later, if you find that terribly painful experience of being rejected because you are a Christian by even people in your family, The one person who can really look you in the eye and say he understands is the Lord Jesus. Rejected in his hometown, rejected again and again. And he cries over Jerusalem, the city. And it broke his heart. But in light of their continued and implacable rejection, Jesus pronounces his judgment on them. The very end of chapter 20, these sobering words, they will receive the greater condemnation. The Lord Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit Never give over to judgment unless there is rejection and continued rejection of salvation. Just glance across to chapter 22, verse 2, the other bookend, if you like, around Jesus' pronouncement of judgment. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death they feared the people. Those who reject Jesus will face God's terrible judgment. Now let me just underscore that, and you need to let that sink in as I need to let that sink in. Those who reject Jesus will face God's uh, terrible uh, judgment. Now one of the benefits of preaching systematically through Bible books is that we don't draw on these themes in order to make a point, but when they come in 
sections of Scripture, and this comes immediately before the cross, immediately before the cross. Uh, those who reject Jesus will face God's terrible uh, judgment. And if you find yourself in a position of rejection of Jesus, you will face God's terrible judgment. Now, over the next few weeks in Luke's gospel, he will seek to do all that he can to persuade you as you study the narratives of the cross and the resurrection. But you must mark Jesus' words. And God's judgment for those who reject him is what happened in AD 70 when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. That is God's judgment. In verses 20 to 24 are sobering to read. Here's a, a, a phrase from them. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath, that is the wrath and judgment of God, against this people. These are sobering words. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, the Jewish people, God's people, who had rejected their Messiah. And we must not evade the clear teaching of the Lord Jesus that this is the judgment of God. Those who reject Jesus will face God's terrible judgment. And now, let me explain why Jesus telescopes that event with the coming of the Son of Man, where the common theme is judgment. Judgment. Judgment will be the fate of all those who have rejected Jesus when the Son of Man comes at the end of the church age. The commission given to the Lord is to claim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Many will turn to Jesus and trust in him as their saviour, but many will reject him and face the judgment of God. And it will be a terrible day when the Son of Man comes in his glory and people will faint with fear and foreboding for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And Jesus teaches elsewhere, and the apostles corroborate this, and the whole of Scripture's logic points to this. For those who reject the Son of Man, there is to be an eternity in a living hell. And we must mark that. Pause not rush to point four, not rush to pass by the sober teaching when it comes. You see, this must be true if the gospel is true. If Jesus dies bearing God's wrath instead of us bearing God's wrath, then for those who will not Look to him for salvation. God's wrath is still in our heads. It's the logic of the gospel. If it's not true, that logic, Jesus' death is not true. And the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that major event in history, is proof that God's judgment is real. The question for us all to reflect on is, do we really believe that God's judgment is real? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is proof that it is. And secondly, don't listen to my words, 
the question you need to consider, as I do, is who is speaking of these things? Jesus Christ, who speaks with absolute authority. And I wonder if that's a helpful way to reflect on all of this. His word or our word? His view or my view? The Son of Man describing how things will be or me as a man describing how I think things will be? Now, let's turn to number four and then number five in a bit more detail. Those who trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord will be spared God's terrible uh, judgment. How can we be certain? Because of what his death achieves. And we will see that certainty over the coming weeks as we look at Luke's description of the wrath of God um, against Jesus so that for those who look to him, the wrath of God is not against us. Point number five, and the teaching here is so very helpful. In the meantime, how are those who follow Jesus to live? As we wait for the coming of the Son of Man at the end of the church age to bring in the new creation, how are we to live as believers in the meantime? There's loads of helpful practical teaching here. Let me encourage you to talk about it. Let me encourage you to feed back. Let me encourage you to nuance it, to pray about it, to think it through. And I want to identify three groups. Three groups that this teaching is relevant to. Us, sitting here and online. Chalmers Church family. The second group are our many different partners scattered around the world, for whom and in the context that some of them are in, right on the wire alongside the kind of stuff that's described here. And then the third group, and this has really come home to me in the last two to three weeks in all sorts of different conversations and meetings and so on and so forth, and it might be to do with a particular time we are at in history in our country or in the UK, that there is a shaking up and, and Christian leaders or future Christian leaders or Christians who are keen are really under pressure and under spiritual attack. Now, to all these people, Jesus speaks through the generations and he says these things. In this context, be careful not to be led astray. See that you are not led astray, verse 8. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after him. Do not go after them. And I think what he means there from his teaching elsewhere is those who will seek to take the place of Jesus and preach and teach a different gospel, a different version of how God speaks, and to set aside the words of God. That haunting text in the middle of our chapter, uh, the words of God will never pass away. See that you are not led astray, and do not doubt for a minute that as a church family in Chalmers, that the ministers here, the preachers here, the Bible study leaders here, and our partners around the world could not be led astray. It is enormously tempting to get off the front line it is enormously tempting to take the heat down and the pressure down of real Christian living. 
Secondly, and here I'm on verse 9, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. Do not be terrified. Now, I've been wondering this week why Jesus uses the word terrified. And I wonder if I was a little in service one, a little flippant. And I spoke afterwards to one of the Ukrainian refugees who's with us. She does not know where her husband is. And there she was with a little boy. And she said, I understand this text. I'm afraid. But I'm not terrified. Is that striking? It's a bit like Christians grieve, but they do not grieve as the world grieves. What's happening in Ukraine is terrible. But it's an illustration of humanity's sinful hearts. Why don't we all pray that woman will be reunited with her husband and her children with her father and many like them. Do not be terrified. Isn't that a striking, striking application? Be afraid, be fearful, be sober, but do not be terrified, for God is no less sovereign. And that takes us to see, discern, and be aware of the signs. Then he said to them, verse 10, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Verse 25, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear at the foreboding. Now, uh, what are the signs that God's judgment is coming on the world? The sign that God's judgment is coming on the world is the world tearing itself apart. Wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nation. And there will come a time perhaps when that goes so intense that the Lord Jesus will then come. We don't know exactly. And then verse 25, the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, the roaring of the sea. I think that's speaking about natural disaster, global pandemics, climate change, all that stuff. And I think as Christians, we need to be alert to how these things are evidence of the fact that Jesus is coming. What do we make as Christians of the whole environmental stuff? Well, we should all do our bit. It's important that we do. Otherwise, we're hypocrites. But deep down in our hearts, we know that, the, that humanity is incapable of fixing the creation 
because in order to do so, humanity would need to put God back on the throne of the world. Creation is groaning. Look, Jesus says, don't be terrified. Be alert and be aware. Now, notice that uh, point 5C, discerning and aware of the signs, is sub-point C of point 5. And that's about right in terms of the amount of time we need to give to speculating about which particular point of history we are in. But keep alert, keep vigilant. Expect opposition and persecution. Verse 12 Verse 16, verse 17, verse 19. And the stuff there is happening in various parts of the world. And uh, I'm going to stick my neck on the line and say that, that we are heading in this kind of direction more rapidly than we might realize in the Western world. All sorts of stuff to really alarm us. Now, in it all, what are we to do? We are to bear witness to Jesus, trusting him for wisdom and the words to say, I love this, you know, whatever context you're in, there will be opportunities to bear witness, but you do not know what to say, and you do not think you will muster the words to say it. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. And, and that phrase in verse 14, settle it, therefore, in your minds, is make up your mind now. So all of us, make up our minds now. Make up your mind. Settle it in your minds. Mark this moment. Write it down on your service sheet that when the opportunity comes and when you are forced to speak of Jesus, he will give you the knowledge and the words and the breath and the power to say it. That's exactly what it's saying. Which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now they may chuck stuff at you, but the gospel uh, silences. Because the gospel comes when it is explained. Why does it silence people? Because it comes with truth with grace, with humility, and with the person who explains it, saying, I am a sinner saved by God's grace. It may not persuade, but it convicts. Endure, standing firm, because you have everlasting life. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. You have eternal life. You are immortal. Your mortality on this earth is in God's hand. Your immortality is secure. And then <laughs> I love this little phrase, which I've described as hold your heads up. Uh, verse 27 and 28, he's speaking about the Son of Man coming when they see the Son of Man. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. There's a, an appropriate point for us as Christians and as churches to be humble, and there's an appropriate point to lift up our eyes, to lift up our heads, maybe to glance upwards to see Jesus coming back. 
There is no reason to drop our heads. Lift up your heads. Hold your heads high. And then verse 34. And again, I was a little crass, I think, on this earlier. Not intentionally. But when you preach on a verse like 34, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. There will be someone whose heart is weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life listening. And note what Jesus says. Mark in your heart that you will not be consumed by it. That you will not let it dominate you for the rest of your life. That does not mean to say that you will not be weighed down with these things and with drunkenness and with the cares of your life. But you have within you the power of the Holy Spirit that it need not and will not so dominate you that you cannot bear witness to Christ. That's a more powerful thing, isn't it? Stay awake. Somebody said to me after service one, my problem is not staying awake, I can't sleep. Because I'm weighed down with the... And all that pastoral stuff makes this real. And pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And I think what this is saying is, is be alert, keep on your toes, be vigilant and be prayerful because it's a pretty scary world we're in. And then it wonderfully resolves. Verse 37 and 38. Keep coming to Jesus to listen to his teaching. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So wherever we live in whatever generation, and we are living in an increasingly tough generation as Christians, keep on coming to Jesus to listen to his word. If you're in a gospel church and the gospel church you're in is teaching the Bible, keep coming on a Sunday, keep going to your small groups. If it stops teaching from the Bible, move churches or have a go at sorting out the teachers first. Keep listening to Jesus' words. And that verse right in the middle of our passage, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are sobering passages in Scripture. And we pray that that final point on our outline, which is the, the tone and burden of this passage, that whoever we are listening this morning, we would heed the warnings of judgment and heed the warnings of judgment in history and give our lives to the Lord Jesus while we have life and breath and time to do so, lest we face the terrible judgment of God in everlasting hell. Lord, these are big decisions, and time is running out. And for those of us who have trusted, we are ever thankful for the mediation of grace through Christ. And help us in the meantime, as we await the Lord Jesus' return, to live in accordance with what he says in this passage, and to meditate on these things.
for Jesus' sake. Amen.